We want to welcome you to the Love First podcast. It's April 1st, and today we're going to be talking about what to do when you don't know what to do. The Love First podcast is about engaging culture, life on life's terms, and loving better in the midst of it. So we want to welcome you. If this is your first time with us, thank you for joining us. We'd ask you, if you would, please to like and subscribe and share. We're going to share just a little bit of housekeeping with the North Atlanta Church in Atlanta, Georgia. And so if you'd like to stay with us for a few minutes, we'd love for you to tune in. Or you can skip ahead to the music when the podcast starts in just a few moments. For housekeeping for the North Atlanta Church, we want to thank you for Sunday morning. It was awesome. Our virtual lobby opened at 930 and we had a blast for the first 30 minutes. I do want to mention something. We were still having a blast on the chat throughout the service and I finally looked at my wife when I realized I'm talking during my own sermon. This is what's happening. It just, what it highlighted for me is we loved being together because we love each other. And so we're looking forward to that. So this Sunday morning, go to lovefirst.org. You'll see where you can join live. If you haven't done this yet, go up to the left-hand corner of your screen, click on the hamburger menu. You'll see a drop-down box that'll give you the opportunity to sign in. And that's at 9.30. Worship starts at 10 o'clock. And we would love for you to join us. We also have a few things that we want to mention about the resources online. All of our resources, and we're adding to them every single week, can be found at lovefirst.org. And tonight is the second Recovery Live. It's a live streaming recovery meeting that's led by one of our ministers, Jasmine Turner. And so join Recovery Live tonight at lovefirst.org at 7 o'clock. Next week, on April the 8th, we will have Recovery Live at 7, but we'll also have a Bible class taught by Laura Morrow. Dr. Laura Morrow will be sharing this, and it's a seven-week series entitled Exceedingly Abundantly Able in the Tough Times Too. Uh, during her uh, journey through cancer, cancer treatment, she discovered the powerful faithfulness of God, and she wants to lead us in a study so that we too can tap into God's strength and faithfulness in these hard times. What perfect timing for such a class. We also want you to know that every week for our worship service, we have a cappella worship and instrumental worship, and each week we're changing which comes first, and so you'll have an opportunity to turn in and enjoy both or enjoy a worship style uh, that uh, really speaks to your heart. And so we wanted you to know that. And with this housekeeping in mind, let's go ahead and begin our podcast for today, What to Do When You Don't Know What to Do. Love first, I know. A friend of mine sent me this uh, quote this morning, day eight at home during the coronavirus. My dog looks at me and says, see, this is why I chew furniture. I think all of us can admit that on the front end, uh, we kind of got our game face on, right? You know, we suddenly realized that this astounding viral invasion is coming our way. Yes, on the front end, people from my street uh, to Wall Street were denying it. We had people in politics and media and, and even our own family members just kind of trying to, you know, keep it at bay and deny that it's even going to happen. But finally, we realized, man, this thing is real. It's dangerous and it's coming and its impact is overwhelming. I think of those uh, videos we watch of the coming of a tsunami. And when it's out to sea, the wave kind of doesn't look as powerful and, and, and as mighty and destructive as it is. But when it comes ashore, it just wipes out everything in its path. And it kind of feels like that the coronavirus and COVID-19 have been a little bit like a tsunami that has come ashore. So now we realize, man, this is serious. We've got three-fourths of the United States that is under some measure of a lockdown or a shelter in place. Think about that. You've got nearly 280 million people being told, stay at home. Now, uh, in the beginning, 
you know, we thought to ourselves, all right, come on, people, we can do anything for a short amount of time, right? So some college students were told uh, maybe second to third day of their spring break, hey, don't come back for a week. You're going to have to do this online. And as some of our own college students told us, they were like, you know what? Okay, we can do that. Only to discover then that it was going to be, you know, don't come back at all. Come back at staggered times to get your stuff out of the dorm. You may or may not get to say goodbye to your, your close friends. Just so different. Some high schools were, you know, we're going we're gonna to have to cancel the prom, right? But, but we still have graduation, and some of them are realizing now that maybe kids have been going to school since they were in preschool, looking forward their whole lives to this graduation moment, going to walk the stage, and now I, maybe they're not. Some of you thought, okay, all right, I can do this homeschooling thing. Uh, I haven't been in school in a while, but we can do this. We can partner with our school and partner with the teachers and figure out how to do this through Zoom or online. We're going to do this. And now you're thinking, we're going to do this through the end of the year. Uh, maybe that is why the dog chews furniture, right? Oh, I know, it's, it's tough. Because some people whose company said to them, hey, can you take a little bit of a reduction? Can we take a reduction in hours? Can you take a little bit of your vacation time? Can you go with the furlough? You see how it kept moving? And now we're going to have to lay you off. And now we're going to have to close the doors. And maybe the company even goes under. See, it feels like that tsunami just keeps coming at us. A friend of mine many, many years ago Edna Shuffett, who had experienced an enormous amount of joy and heartache in her life. One of the things that she shared with me is she said, humans can withstand just about anything as long as they know how long it's going to last, how much it's going to hurt. But it's undefined suffering. It's that suffering when we kind of shrug our shoulders and say, we don't know how long it's going to last. We don't know how long it's going to hurt. We don't know how we're going to come out the other side. It's what to do when we don't know what to do. So we start by making adjustments. The adjustments maybe are small at the beginning. And we even wonder, right? So there was this panic buying. You know, we, we've got to get to the store and maybe even buy a freezer and fill our freezer. And maybe now the preppers look like the geniuses, right? That, that, you know, maybe we should have been storing up, you know, spam in an underground bunker for, uh, you know, to last us for 50 years, you know, make sure we've got our stock of Twinkies that can withstand a nuclear blast, right? We, that, well, but now maybe there is toilet paper in the store and Maybe we just, maybe the most dangerous thing I'll do is to actually go shopping. You see, our lives have been upended in this way. And now we're recognizing what we know is a raindrop. What we don't know seems like the ocean. So what do you do when you don't know what to do? So when we start making the small adjustments, we realize these small adjustments aren't going to last forever. If this continues, then the financial plan I had at the beginning may not be the same financial plan I need going forward. The plan for schooling my children at home on the front end may now have to shift to a different plan. You realize that many people who have lost loved ones during this coronavirus did not lose their loved ones to the virus, of course. For all the other reasons that people were facing illness and disease, those, the other big C, cancer. People trying to figure out dialysis. This all continues. So many people during this time have postponed graduations, but also what we call a graduation to glory. It's not that their loved one isn't at home with the Lord if they've passed on. It's that they didn't have closure because there's no funeral yet. We've had people postponing weddings. You see, what do you do when you don't know what to do? So now those adjustments begin to take their toll. 
At first we said, well, you know, maybe we won't buy this or, or maybe we'll cut back on this. But now do we need to cut back even more? We thought to ourselves, well, if we cut out our certain kind of services and we don't have the premium television and maybe we cut back on our data use and things like that. But now people are asking, will we have to move out of our apartment? Will we have to sell our home? See, these adjustments are huge. So when we start making adjustments, how do we know if the adjustments we're making are good adjustments? Well, first of all, if you stop and think about it, this is why the community matters. This is why we need each other. This is why we know it takes a village. That sometimes we need to reach out to people with expertise, with giftedness, and get some help in making these decisions. Yes, it requires humility. And yes, it requires kind of swallowing our pride and recognizing that we need others, but others need us that the gifts that they have can help us in the questions we're not sure how to answer, but the gifts that we have can help others in the questions maybe that they're not sure how to answer. But adjustments must be made. Putting off adjustments won't help us. Some of you, uh, it's not lost on you that today is April 1st. We normally think of that of April Fool's Day, a day when people play hoaxes and pranks on each other, right? But none of that seems appropriate, does it? Whether anyone can nail down the origin of April Fool's Day or the pack practices of April Fool's Day, over the last several years, one of the more um, popular April Fool's Day pranks comes from Google. Uh, every year they have become famous for uh, some of their failures, but also some of the most extravagant April Fool's jokes. And they do this company-wide and their marketing gets involved. I don't know if you noticed in the news, but it wasn't missed on anyone that Google officially said, we're not doing that this year. We're not doing it from our marketing down to any employee in our entire system because it's just not appropriate this year. They allowed that maybe in 2021, that fund will return, but not now. So a tradition that was in the company that brought people joy and a lot of creativity and even the marketing department got involved. All of a sudden someone says, we know that that's not appropriate. We had to make an adjustment. So adjustments are extremely important in this process. We notice this often in the ministry of Jesus and the early church. One of the most famous examples has to do with how people in the Western world heard the story of our faith. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter uh, uh, 16 that Paul, the Apostle Paul and his companions were traveling through that region just north of the Mediterranean. And you might remember, this is Paul's home, home area. These are his stomping grounds. So of course, the Apostle Paul wants those people to hear the gospel. So as they're traveling, uh, the person kind of keeping notes along the way is Luke, who is also a doctor, and he uh, penned the book of Acts. So he's writing the notes as they go. And he happens to mention in Acts 16 that one of their plans was to go to a place called Mycia. And this is in that region and uh, what, what people used to call Asia Minor. But he just records that the Holy Spirit said no. He doesn't explain how they knew that. But just the Holy Spirit moved in their lives and said no to Mycenae. And they had this idea they'd go to Bithynia, another uh, uh, region uh, that's in that same area. And again, he says, you know, the Holy Spirit said, no, don't go there either. You know, All right. Well, now what? I mean, we had our plans set. We're going to go share the gospel in these regions. But now what do we do? Then the Bible says that the Apostle Paul, in a vision at night, saw what was like a man from the northern Greece region of Macedonia. You remember, this is a very famous region. This is where um, Philip of Macedon and his famous son Alexander come from. And this, this man from Macedonia says, please come and share the gospel with us. Well, that means that rather than turning back east, they're going to go further west. And you realize then they end up in Europe. And you realize that the gospel flourishes there, which is why the Western world heard the gospel the way it did. That adjustment was profound. And I want to just point your attention to one statement in the middle of it. 
Paul received a vision from God, but Luke says, we concluded, which means Paul shared his vision with the village. He shared it with the community, and they made a decision together. Even though the vision was from God, the community participated. So I want you to think about that in regard to the coronavirus. Some people are trying to decide, how do I keep myself safe? How do I protect my freedoms, my individualism? And to be candid, that's not helping at this point. One of the adjustments that has to be made is that taking care of me and taking care of you are not competing values. We do this together. You might have noticed that, and you got to bear in mind, with what I'm about to say, I know it's a little controversial. So on the front end, let me share this. I'm a preacher. I love our church. I love the church worldwide. I, I am so thankful for the gospel being shared worldwide. But when I see a preacher call his church together for mass meetings during a time when we recognize that that is dangerous for the community, it is not good for others, it is not safe, and then declares that somehow people come in and tell him that he can't do that as religious persecution, that's ridiculous. And I'm just going to say it. That's not, Christian per that's not Christians being persecuted. It's not religion, religious persecution. In fact, it's an insult on true religious persecution. It's an insult to our sisters and brothers around the world who are genuinely persecuted for their faith. The reality is, is that the body of Christ from the very beginning has been meeting in homes, house to house, yes, in big meetings, yes, in small meetings. None of that has to do with one form that fits every circumstance in every generation. So when the community and our community leaders, our local, state, and federal leaders tell us that we need to practice physical distancing, that in order for us to love and love first, that we need to practice this, and then someone calls their church together in a mass meeting and then declares that it's persecution when they are arrested and told they can't do it, that's an insult to true persecution. This requires adjustments, and those kinds of adjustments mean that taking care of us, myself, my family, and taking care of others are not competing values. We have to do this together. And the togetherness is, it starts in our homes and then in our apartment complexes, our neighborhoods, our streets, our school districts, at our local stores, uh, in our courthouses, in our state houses, in our governments. But catch this, it crosses borders. So borders begin to help each other. Bordering states begin to help each other. Even if they haven't got along, they realize, you know what? We should have been taking care of each other all along. So it's going to take all of us working together. Now, I want you to consider something about this. Is it possible that when we get to a better place in relation to the coronavirus, we often talk about kind of getting to the other side of this, and the other side would include things like uh, available testing and a vaccine and, and therapeutic treatments and all the things that Dr. Fauci and others have been outlining for us. So let me go with me. When we get kind of to the other side of all of that and we look back and someone says, I can't wait for things to get back to normal, I want to suggest that I would say this, I can't wait for things to just get better. Because there are things that we were practicing before the coronavirus that were not good for us. And there are things we're practicing because of the coronavirus that are absolutely good for us. Think about this. Lower levels of pollution. More people walking. More people exercising. More neighbors talking with one another. More people helping each other. More people calling instead of just texting. People checking in on, on loved ones. People checking in on people they don't even know. People doing millions of random acts of kindness. Are, are we serious? We want to go back to a time when we weren't doing all of that? <laughs> One of my friends uh, gave me a call and he said, hey man, I'm in the best shape I've been in in forever. 
I said, what? And he's like, yeah, man, I've got a flat stomach again. I kind of cracked up about that a little bit. I said, well, I kind of gave up on that a little while ago. He said, well, all right, my stomach's only flat when I'm laying down. But, but you get what we're joking about. The truth is we have reignited some practices during this that we absolutely want to continue when we get to the other side. The adjustments that we're making, it all spells an answer to the question of today. What do we do when we don't know what to do? Sometimes you just do. But I want to outline what I think are a couple of things we can take away. Number one, do what you should have been doing before this, right? You take care of life, but you also take care of life after life. I want you to think about this. If you're not right with God, if you haven't uh, uh, given Jesus a place in your heart, if you haven't given God a place in your life, if it's been a while since you've reached out and said, God, hey, I, wanna, I want a new relationship. I want to restore a relationship. I'm asking you to do that right now. You know, if you're a thousand steps away from God, you turn around and it's one step back to him. So just, just open your heart up and say, God, I want to restart this. I want a fresh relationship with you on the other side of this. And it starts right now. The second thing is, what about taking care of your business that isn't your business? Like taking care of your relationships with your parents, your children, siblings, family members. If there's someone you're on the outs with, it doesn't make a lot of sense right now, does it? So what about a call or a text or an email to just say, hey, why don't we take a fresh step in a, in a good direction? So the first thing is this, do what you should have been doing all along. Here's the second one. Do what's doable, even if it's brand new to you. Do what's doable, even if it's brand new to you. Some things available to us are doable, but they are either things that are new to us, things that we've not done in the past, and listen carefully, some things require learning new skills and going through the discomfort of learning a new skill right? So some people in the past were like, I hate technology. You know, uh, mobile phones are ruining the world. You know, uh, I, I don't want to be on the internet. I hate Facebook. All of those things people said in the past. And I get it, right? We felt like all of those things were turning us into drones. But now we realize, whoop, there was some really good potential there to connect us to others. So now it's like, what does this button do? Let me advise you this. If you don't know how to operate your iPhone, get anyone that's five years or older and they got you covered. They know what to do with it. Well, they may not know all of what to do with it. But what I'm saying is this. If doing what you need to do requires learning a new skill, you got time on your hands, friend. Do it right now. Learn that new skill. Sometimes doing what you need to do, even if it's brand new, means getting out of your personality comfort zone. That means addressing some of your behaviors and realizing, realizing that you've had some behavioral patterns in the past that didn't totally mess up your life, but they didn't help either. So what about making some adjustments right now that push you out of your comfort zone? And finally, support others that are doing good things and making a difference without losing nuance and discernment. Now, what do I mean by that? Hey, if someone's making a difference and someone's doing a good thing, support the good difference and support the good thing. Just because someone does something good, that doesn't rationalize their, their, their bad behavior or, and, and it doesn't like cover over other negative things they're doing. So don't feel like that if you support a good decision, a good policy or a good response that you are tacitly compromising your ethics or you're somehow supporting somebody else's negative behavior or inappropriate behavior. We recognize this. If someone moves us to better care and a cure through their political re reform or through a policy decision, if it's helping better care and a cure, that's a good thing, but that doesn't mean that I have to like or support their political platform or their personality or anything like that. It doesn't mean that somehow all of that is justified or godly or somehow it represents the blessing of God on their life. No, 
It just means that we can support good moves and good steps toward compassionate care and a cure without losing the nuance and discernment that we will need on the other side of this. We often talk about an Old Testament figure, Cyrus the Great, who was a Persian, right? And in Scripture, God refers to him as his shepherd, his shepherd doing vital things that bless the Jewish nation. But if you read the story of Cyrus, if right now, go back and read the history of Cyrus, you don't have to get two paragraphs in to figure out that God was not condoning Cyrus's life, Cyrus's beliefs, that God was not somehow putting a blanket of blessing over everything else Cyrus was doing. God was supporting Cyrus's policies that were better for the people, good for the people of God, and brought about compassionate care and a cure to their captivity. God was not, in essence, saying whatever Cyrus does is fine. So what, what can we do? Do what we should have been doing all along. That's a crucial adjustment, and it has long-term blessing. Number two, do some new things that require new skills and some adjustments in our personal life. And number three, support the good that is being done. Support every advancement in compassionate cure, support uh, or compassionate care, every advancement toward a cure, realizing that that doesn't mean that you're giving up your integrity for other things that you don't agree with. Even God supported what Cyrus did to bless people and specifically the people of God without putting a blanket endorsement of Cyrus's whole life and all of his political platforms or all of the decisions he made. So we maintain our discernment and our nuance as we support these good changes and these good options. See, there are things that we can do when we don't know what to do. So right now, what about opening up a prayer to the Lord that starts something like this? Lord, I want to know you better starting today. I want to know you better starting today. You can reach out to us at lovefirst.org. There's a place for there, there for you to put in a question, to ask a question that we'll address on the podcast. I have one I'm going to address today. And if you'll do that, you can also share that you're on a journey to get to know God, and we want to help you with that, and we want to participate with you in a journey to get things right with God. If you want to learn some new skills to better connect, you'll see on our website that there's a few videos that'll help you figure out how to connect with our podcast, how to connect with our Sunday morning worship. These are new skills that can bless you in that walk with God. And as you support the good things that are helping us, other people are going to feel inspired to give their best as well. We're going to transition here in just a moment to a live interview that we did yesterday with Thomas Nybo, an internationally acclaimed journalist, filmmaker, on assignment with UNICEF in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where he was last year on the front lines of the Ebola crisis, and now he's on the front lines of the coronavirus and COVID-19 in the Democratic Republic of Congo. That interview is coming up in just a moment. So we'll transition to that with this scripture. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 12, the king, in the face of an overwhelming tsunami of an enemy force invading them, said these words, Our God, we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Turn your eyes to God. Now listen in with us as we share in this live interview with Thomas Nivo. Hey, uh, I want to introduce you for a moment to our uh, live broadcast here. And so first of all, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to uh, a Tuesday edition of the Love First broadcast uh, podcast. Uh, we normally uh, broadcast on Wednesdays, but we had a special opportunity to have a live uh, conversation with our friend, um, Thomas Nibo. So I want to tell people a little bit of, uh, about you, just a quick introduction. Uh, Thomas is an international journalist and filmmaker 
he has covered all or many uh, hotspots and crises around the world. Uh, he's been featured on multiple um, uh, international uh, news events, as well as all of the uh, primary news outlets that you could think of that would uh, cover these kinds of events. Uh, I'm going to ask Thomas in a moment to share with us a little bit about where he is now and uh, what he's been doing, but he's on assignment right now with UNICEF in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And uh, this is his second major assignment there in the last 12 months. He and his family uh, make Atlanta their home, but he's a native of Big Sky Country out in uh, Montana. And so welcome to the Love First podcast, Thomas. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Don. Tell us a little bit about your assignment that you're on right now and give us a little bit of an update on uh, what you've been doing. Uh, so if you take a few moments to do that. Sure. So I actually came here to work on some environmental protection stories. But as the coronavirus pandemic was heating up, uh, we quickly transitioned to coronavirus. And the, mm. the last Ebola case here in the country was over a month ago. So it's, it's more or less a clean transition. So what I've been doing is spending a lot of time with kids and telling their stories. Mm. UNICEF is doing a lot globally, but we're a little bit ahead of the curve. So what we're doing is mm. talking with kids and getting a sense of what they know about the virus, mm. how, they, how they feel about not being in school because the schools are shut down, a lot of the restaurants are shut down looking at it from their perspective, and what are some of their fears, what are some of their concerns moving forward. So it's all been these very personal moments. I just spent mm. actually a couple hours with, with a street kid who used to be a shepherd. He mm. lost uh, one of his family sheep and his father kicked him out of the house. And so he's been on the street for a couple of years. And he said his life on the street is so dangerous that he's not worried about Corona. So wow. we, we talked to him and if, if you try to tell him, oh, make sure you wash your hands for 20 seconds. And he said, uh, you know, I don't have a sink. I don't have yeah. water. So it's, it's, it's as much a learning experience for me as it is for a lot of these kids that we're meeting with. And the situation here in Eastern Congo, the, the majority of the confirmed cases are in the West, in Kinshasa. Mm. But the challenge is, as is the challenge in the U.S., is the absence of tests. Nobody knows how many true cases there are. There are 80-something confirmed cases, but there might be 20 or 30 or 50 times that in the country. And so what we're doing, we feel like we're about two or three weeks behind the rest of the world. There are a lot of restrictions in place. The border with Rwanda, which is right behind me, is shut down. The border with Uganda is shut down. The schools are shut down. The restaurants are shut down. But there's no social distancing, and it's very difficult to do in a country where three out of four people live on $2 a day which is right. what is considered extreme poverty. It's, yeah. it's, it's an interesting moment because you do what you can, but you have to really look at what makes this area interesting, challenging, and, and that's you, you can't just tell people to stay at home if they only have a day or two's worth of food for 10 people. Yeah. Uh, if you look at what's happening in Kenya, there's some riots there. If, if you lock people up and don't let them get food, they're either going to starve or riot. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. government in, intervention or intervention by an NGO or, or a UN agency is desperately needed. But it's yeah. basically, we're putting our hand on the pulse of the young people here and mm. getting a sense of kind of where they're at uh, moving forward and, and kind of making that transition with them. The good news is they're accustomed uh, to washing their hands in hand-washing stations around the city. Uh, doesn't mm -hmm. really help you if you're a homeless kid who, who lives right. in, you know, on one city block. But for the, the, the population at large, that's, that's a good thing. Thank you, Thomas, and for that update. And I think what's fascinating to me is that as different of circumstances as you're describing there, I think our listeners are going to also be picking up on some similarities, right? So uh, you talked about social distancing, you talked about uh, hand washing, you talked about uh, the idea of schools being closed and uh, restaurants being closed. You talked about uh, being a little bit behind the curve and the concern about testing. And so uh, as different 
as the two uh, circumstances are, it also links us in a realization that there are similarities uh, that you are describing. Uh, Now, one thing I would like for you to take a moment and maybe share with us is, you know, last year, you were there for over three months covering the second uh, largest Ebola outbreak uh, in uh, recent history or perhaps in history. Uh, But now you're saying that the last, and I saw this on the news, uh, that the last Ebola patient had uh, finally uh, emerged from quarantine. Um, But then you mentioned this transition to the coronavirus. And so tell us a little bit about what it's been like for you to return to a country who, in essence, thought they were emerging from one crisis only to find themselves plunged into another crisis. If you look at the history of DR Congo, it's not a surprise in many ways. If you look mm-hmm. back to King Leopold II of Belgium yeah. and, and what he did to this country, he killed millions of people, uh, just took the riches and they gave nothing in return, that kind of set the tone in many ways. Yeah. And if you look at what's happening in the east of the country, eastern Congo, there's still war going on. I mean, there, there are areas of the country that don't even show up on any maps. There are areas that I can't even go to. Wow. So they're, they're, they're also dealing with, with cholera. They're dealing with measles, which has actually mm-hmm. killed more people than Ebola. So much like the challenges facing a country like Haiti, they're mm-hmm. kind of, for lack of a better term, um, a, a, acclimatized to it. It's, yes. it's not a big shock, but uh, for myself personally, it's, it's very tricky because I'm on the street every day and there's been an increasing number of people who accuse me, a Mzungu, an outsider, of spreading the yep. coronavirus. Yep. So you, that's part of having your hand on the pulse and, and, and walking yep. that fine line between helping somebody and, and becoming a target. So, I mean, that's one of the challenges too, I think, for any anyone doing relief work or emergency work is you have to be smart about how you help somebody. Yes. And, 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 and part of that is listening. And yes. part of that listening is understanding their fears and where those fears come from. Uh, you know, I saw that, I was accustomed to that with Ebola, uh, but I'm hearing more of it with coronavirus. Um, right. I, on Facebook, I said, it's really kind of feels like the calm before the storm. And we're just going to have to, you know, take it one step at a time and do what we can without putting ourselves in, in jeopardy. Because as, as anyone knows, um, if, if you're not, if, if you don't take care of yourself, then, yeah. then you can't help anybody. Yeah. And I do remember, you know, uh, over the past several years, I'm thinking about some of the international crises you've covered, like uh, the uh, mass migration of uh, Syrian refugees, the Rohingya crisis, uh, Ebola. You have been in these places and you mentioned this idea of being kind of acclimatized to these kinds of circumstances. Uh, How do you think that that impacts the way that Americans are experiencing uh, the coronavirus where perhaps many Americans haven't been fully acclimatized to something exactly like this. I'm not saying that they are foreign uh, to heartache or to disease or things like that. I'm just suggesting that something of this magnitude, uh, you hear quite often people talking about this being a once in a generation uh, for a a place like the United States. Um, What would you say about the circumstances in the U.S. and people not being acclimatized to such uh, circumstances as this. You bring up a good point. And what I was saying earlier, the people of the Congo in, in some, some ways, at least emotionally are better prepared perhaps for a pandemic like, like the current coronavirus pandemic, because they've gone through Ebola many times. They're going through a cholera outbreak. They're going through measles outbreak. And the, the U.S. hasn't seen anything like this, you know, since maybe the Spanish flu on our shores. Mm-hmm. And so in, in that sense, they're used to it. And even I still have a lot of friends in Haiti, and it doesn't take much for the city to shut down. Mm, yeah. And 
yeah. people, I think, are prepared to 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 go uh, a week, two weeks, a month. Um, but that's not the case in the U.S. If you see the run on toilet paper and hand sanitizer, so. Yeah. 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 Yesterday or no Sunday, Sunday, uh, I made an early run to uh, Kroger to pick up an item or two. And I noticed that they had uh, some toilet paper. And so I picked up one little four roll packet and I was in the next aisle where I heard a manager approach this person who had filled their cart with toilet paper. And the manager uh, very nicely said, uh, to the shopper, uh, I wanted to thank you for shopping at Kroger and let you know of our shopping options today. You can either take <laughs> two or none. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And I think that's the same thing we see. Well, one thing that people I know uh, are trying to figure out is, like, what is the difference between a coronavirus and Ebola right, where Ebola had such a high morbidity rate, coronavirus seems to be a spreading internationally uh, so much differently than Ebola spread. Um, what are your thoughts on the difference between those two viruses? Ebola is deadlier, but corona spreads faster. Yeah. Ebola, they were able to contain uh, the world has not been able to contain the coronavirus. Yeah, children yeah. in particularly seem very well adapted, uh, able to survive corona, um, mm. but they seem very they're very vulnerable to Ebola. So yeah. I think that's the difference, and I think it manifests itself. You know, this whole notion of flattening the curve is right. you get such a spike in cases that it overwhelms the hospitals, it overwhelms the infrastructure. And so if you just spread that out over time, you still might get the same number of people who get it, but Got you it. don't overwhelm the hospitals. That's powerful. So a couple of things I wanted to turn our interview for a moment because of your, uh, uh, you are an astounding journalist, great filmmaker. Uh, but for those people that know you, uh, your heart for people is just amazing. And so I wanted to just take a few moments with you and let you tell us a little bit about what it means to be Thomas Nybo in these situations. Uh, first of all, share with us a little bit about your experiences covering these hotspots of de deadly diseases, because you, as you've reported, you've been doing this for a while. What is it like for you to go into situations where you know that um, the situations are dangerous, that the people there are suffering greatly, and there is a great sense of anxiety, and even in some cases, hopelessness. First, it's a privilege to do what I do. Mm. And I'm, I'm lucky and perhaps unique in the sense that my, my faith and my profession are inextricably linked. Wow. I draw no distinction between the two. Yeah. And also with the mission of, of our church, love first. I mean, that's what really is the core of my own spirituality and what I think I bring to the table traveling to these different emergencies around the world. And another thought is I'm always a guest and I, I remind myself of that. You know, yes. I come with all humility. I, I, I need to listen before I can help anybody. I need yeah. to kind of see it through their eyes, what they're experiencing. And to me, that's a privilege. And and it's, it's, it's very rewarding and something that I can even share with my children and my wife and, mm. you know, you and, 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 and the congregates at the church. Mm. So it's really an ongoing mission and it really comes down to personal relationships. For yeah. example, uh, yesterday we spent the day with this young boy named Cornell who's out of school. He doesn't have internet though. So he's just got a couple of books to study. That's one of mm. the differences between his life and life in the United States. He's not yes. on Zoom with his other classmates. He's holed up, you know, he's yes. helping his family sell vegetables and mm. he's helping paint and, you know, he's reading the books that he's brought home from school, but it's a very different, uh, a more solitary experience than what you get, you know, with a U.S. child, my own children, for yes. example. So really that's kind of what, what fuels me. And, and the definition of my job is to really, tell stories. And in order to tell a story, you need to 
meet somebody face to face. You need to know their circumstances and what their fears are, what they're excited about, what they're, what they're going through in that moment. And that's been perhaps the greatest gift that I've had doing this kind of work over the past, you know, 15 or 16 years. Yeah. You know, you, you've really touched on something important. One of the statements we often hear through our friends and brothers and sisters in recovery is nothing about me without me. You know, in essence, Mm -hmm. hear me. Don't, don't, don't go tell my story. Let me tell my story to you so that when you share a story, it's actually, you know, my story, right? And I think that that's a way that we can take what you've just shared with us and think about our, our fresh interactions with our neighbors, uh, with people all around us, is that to think of ourselves as guests in their lives and to treat with great humility and sacredness the sharing of life. Now, you've also mentioned your uh, beautiful, beautiful family. And I wanted to move to that. How does your, uh, how do you and your family navigate uh, this calling that you all share together? How do you navigate that? I might choke up a bit here just because Mm -hmm. of the selflessness of my wife and the, the work that she's doing and so many other in essence, uh, single parents in this situation yes. um, because I'm not there and she's homeschooling two kids and there's nobody else in the house but her and the two kids. And she's also got a 30 hour a week job that she can't start until the kids go to sleep. Yeah. And she's not unique in facing that challenge, but it, it allows me to do what I do. And mm. people say too, I, I got a lot of messages like, you need to go home now. And the reality is for a lot of people, you can provide time or money. And I, I try to strike a balance. Right? Yep. In, in, in some ways, I'm fortunate. I'm, I'm on a three-month assignment, um, assuming that I'm able to get out of here in a timely fashion when it's time to go. Right. But it's, it's, we're partners in this. Yes. And honestly, I think her job is a lot more... Mm difficult than mine because she doesn't get a break, right? Like she gets the kids down and that's when, when her, her, her work day begins. Uh, and, and I'm in tremendous admiration for her and deeply appreciative because none of this works without, without that kind of sacrifice and commitment. You're right. And you know, uh, not not all. First of all, you and I are in complete agreement um, that uh, we both married way over our heads. We are both blessed with amazing wives and family. And uh, we recognize that there are many people in the world, countless people in the world that are battling through this in some form of isolation. And we want to right now take a moment and honor that and recognize that and say to people who are who feel like they are struggling by themselves that we see you and we hear you and we care about you and for those that have already lost loved ones who continue to grieve while the world battles the disease we're trying to say to you you are not forgotten and your grief is not forgotten and we want to acknowledge that that these systems of humanity and i don't mean that in a bad sense I mean, the connections of humanity are broad, and, uh, and we all uh, experience that. But also, on another note, just the leadership that your wife and you provide in our church is also an extension of uh, your faith and, and your love. I have, I have one more question that I would like to uh, address. Um, you've already mentioned your faith. And that uh, your calling uh, professionally and your faith are inextricably linked. You are one person. You are Thomas wherever you go. And uh, but I'd like to for you to share um, how does your faith impact you and sustain you? You know, it's it's. I feel like it's at my core, and it's it's been a process to arrive at this point mm. where if you model your life after somebody and you look at Jesus and he seemed to turn down the noise, you know, one of the things that drives me crazy 
is inaction or a lack of humanity within the context of a religion where people get distracted by misinterpreting scripture or uh, uh, getting bogged down in something while there's true suffering in front yes. of them. Yes. So to me, it's, it's a matter of focus and it's a matter of knowing what your mission is. And it's, it's a matter of taking a love first approach. Yes. And once I arrived at that point, life became easier. Yeah. And in some of my more difficult assignments, I had to step back and say, it's not about how I feel. It doesn't always feel good doing what I do. Sometimes right. you put in 10 times the work and you get one one hundredth of, of the results. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's moving that bar. And yes. uh, it goes back to another wonderful quote from Mr. Rogers that we talked about, I think, when, when I, I, I spoke with you during one of, one of your services, yes. and it's being a helper. And yes. you don't need to be thousands of miles away in Eastern Congo to do that. You know, you can, you can go out there in your own community. You can get on Nextdoor or Facebook and just say, hey, how, how are people doing? Does, does anybody need food or, you know, need to talk? Or as you mentioned, people are losing loved ones and the grieving process has been put on hold. They're, you're not yes. allowed to have a funeral. You're not allowed to have mm. a wake. You're not allowed to do the things that we normally do for closure mm. and for communities to come together. So we have to kind of navigate that collectively as a community and figure these things out together. And sometimes people, for whatever reason, their personalities, they're overwhelmed, they don't understand how to make that happen. And I think if, if we're tuned to our own communities, then we can, we can kind of step forward and, and reach out to people on a regular basis and say, hey, are, where, where are you with this? What, what can we do to, yes. to make this happen? Yes. Oh, that's beautiful. You know, Thomas, when you uh, share uh, stories and so on, I'm often trying to imagine myself in your situation, trying to imagine kind of the sights and sounds and experiences. But of course, that's limited. So why don't you close us out today by just telling us um, kind of a, a, a story that uh, you would want everyone to hear from the front lines, a story of courage or a story of hope, from the front lines of people who are facing these things and overcoming them? I'm reminded of a woman that I met in the Rohingya refugee camp. And it might be a story that I, that I already shared with you, but it's one of the most profound moments in my life. And it was this young 19-year-old mother who had been attacked, fleeing with her family from Myanmar into Bangladesh. And a soldier took her young son and threw him up in the air and, and, and killed him with, with a machete. And then she was gang raped by these soldiers. And when I met her, she was in a very bad place. And I followed her for a year and a half, checking on her. And, and just the thanks that she gave me, I was almost embarrassed because she was so effusive in her thanks and mm. saying that she would never uh, forget my generosity and my kindness. And mm. I felt like I really didn't do that much. And what I took away from it was, Sometimes it, it doesn't require much to make a profound difference in somebody's life. You don't need to give. Sometimes I think we're frozen because yes. we think we have to give everything, but it doesn't take much. Sometimes, you know, with a picture that I think I shared with you when I was walking out of an Ebola treatment center, yes. there was a, a woman who was isolated and I smiled at her and I touched my heart and gave her a look like, you can do this, mama. You can get through this. That's all I did. The whole interaction took 60 seconds. Yes. And it, it, was, it was the same kind of reminder of how little it takes. I think, too, it's, it's even when you talk about the next stage for the church and people giving what they can give. Not everybody has a million dollars to give. That's right. You know, if someone's just getting by and they give $5, that, That's right. that $5 means more to them yes. and to be a yes. part of that process. So, <laughs> sorry. We, we do what we can. And again, that's one of my frustrations yes. is, is sometimes when people are paralyzed and, and unwilling to give anything, especially yeah. those with more means, you don't have to give everything, but let's, yeah. let's start by giving something. Maybe yeah. that starts with a smile. Maybe that starts with, you know, I just actually went and uh, my backpack over here, I bought two loaves of bread for the homeless kids who, who stay outside of my, my house because if the streets are shut down, they're not going to be able to hit people up for money or That's restaurants. Right. And so right. it's just open your, open your eyes. You know, That's right. 
it costs it costs me three dollars to buy two loaves of bread, and I'm gonna I'm gonna feed a, a little group of kids yes. for one day. Yes. Right? So. Yes. And I think something else you've illustrated powerfully for me in my life, and you're illustrating here again today, is that in the midst of unspeakable evil or unspeakable suffering, we can find ourselves either so focused on the nature of the evil that we can't even imagine the good, or we see how uh, traumatic the experience is that it paralyzes us. And, and when, it's, when, when a problem is so huge, we imagine that only a huge response, like some single mountain moving moment, will change everything. When in reality, uh, most of us need to pick up a rock and start moving that mountain together. And uh, together, a huge difference can be made. And something that you mentioned that I love is when Jesus is walking through a crowd and even one person wants to get his attention, he finds a way to turn to one person, take even a small amount of time, and change a life. And I think if we can focus on that, then all of us can uh, be kind of unshackled from that paralysis and start making a real difference in the lives around us, no matter what we think we have or do not have. I love this scripture in uh, the Bible in 2 Corinthians 8, where it says, your gift is acceptable, not according to what you don't have, but according to what you do have. And we all have something to give. Thomas, I want to thank you and your family I want to thank uh, your work. Uh, thank you for your work with UNICEF and around the world. And uh, thank you for joining us on the Love First podcast uh, today. Thank you, Don. See you soon. All right. Take care. You know, when I listen to that, I am so inspired by Thomas's life, his mission, his family, and his faith. And you remember we started today asking this question, what do you do when you don't know what to do? And I think Thomas's response would be help. Find ways to help. Join the helpers in doing good. And I want to thank you for joining us today. We had a question come in this last week. And if you will take a few moments and share your question at lovefirst.org, we will share with you a copy of Love First ending hate before it's too late. There's a place to submit your question and uh, your information so we can send you a copy of the book. The question that came in this last week was, how do we love first during what we have called social or physical distancing? So I've noticed this online where a lot of people have said, man, it's so hard to serve our church, to serve our neighborhood, to serve our students when we can't hug, when we can't you know, uh, uh, be with someone physically. We can't go to the hospital and visit them. So there's a couple of things that I would suggest. What people need to know is that you care and that you'll be innovative. Innovative with your care. So we've done a lot more calling on the phone to hospitals to visit people. So that's one thing that I would encourage you to do. You can call a hospital and just say, I would like to visit with a particular person in a particular room, and they can patch you through to the room. Or if they have a cell phone and you know their cell phone number, just call them there. We've also found that some assisted living centers have been willing to do this. We've called a few assisted living centers ahead of time and set up a call in a room with someone that's staying there if they didn't have access to a cell phone. So be innovative and figure out these ways to do it. Um, uh, in our church, some of our family members that have been going through very difficult times in our church and have needed food, like we do that a lot. We call it kind of a food train where people sign up and take care of it. So we've done a lot of preparation of food and then taking it, drop it off at people's homes. Uh, one of the ways that we've been able to make communion available is several of the households in our church have been a, a local place where people can pick up communion supplies. And when we put those together, we wore sterile gloves, we put them in baggies, we sealed them off so that people can receive communion in a sterile uh, 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 situation. So think about it like this. Think about ways to show people that you care innovatively. 
right? So it's still visiting people, but it's in a fresh way, still taking food to people, but in a little different way. Another thing we've discovered is that some food co-ops have been willing for a neighborhood to come together and all of them to place group orders. Well, if you're able to do that, maybe you could find some other people you know that need food, like even what Thomas mentioned in his video, and maybe order a little bit of extra food through that food co-op. So if you save some money, you might have enough to bless another family. These are ways that we can help people. Recently, I, I was in uh, need of a part to fix a sink, and I called a plumbing company, and they said, uh, our, our showroom is not open. But if you'll stay in the parking lot, text us pictures of the part you need. We will put it in a sterile bag and we'll put it out on the front porch of the plumbing company and you can pick it up. And that's exactly what I did. So it doesn't mean these things can't be done. We just have to be a little bit more innovative with them. So thank you for joining us for the Love First podcast today, April 1st, 2020. We'd ask you to please like, subscribe, and share. And we look forward to you tuning in with us on Sunday morning at 930 at lovefirst.org. Love first, I know.